Welcome to another episode of America's Constitution. I'm Andy Lipka here today with Professor Akil Amar. Good morning, Akil. Good morning, Andy. And today it's just the two of us, as Paul McCartney did say. Yeah, I think he's coming to Yale to give a uh, to give a, a, a talk. He went. He received an honorary degree way back when, and I'm so so. Uh, shattered that I won't be able to see him. I was invited, mm. but I'm actually doing an event because of the timing. We're recording this um, before Sir Paul uh, arrives, but um, we'll be uploading it afterwards. But the day that Paul Mac- Sir Paul McCartney is on campus, I'm going to be in New Hampshire with, among others, Justice David Souter. So, oh my God, I have to pick David Souter. Paul McCartney, well, of course, I, I, I chose long ago, um, I agreed to do an event in New Hampshire, so I'm going to miss Sir Paul. Yes, and Paul Ouch. McCartney, received, Sir Paul received his degree, his honorary degree from Yale uh, at my son's commencement. I remember that moment. It, it, was, it, was, it was epic. Moment. Wow. Yes. <laughs> okay, well, you know. But, but, but and, Andy, t- two of us. You know, I was kind of joking a bit. It's it's a it's an it's one of my favorite Paul McCartney songs, and it's about friendship. And I think it actually works at least two levels. It it, it I think it's about Linda in part. Um, this is when he's falling in love with Linda, but it's also about John. You know, you and I have memories. You know, longer than the road that stretches out of here, and it's trying to you know, at some deep level, subliminally or consciously, rekindle his very uh, special friendship with John. And, and Andy, this is how I feel about you and, and our, our podcast. We, we, we have really quite a, a special friendship, uh, the two of us. Yes, as we go down the long and winding road. Although I think that was George. <laughs> That's a different one. Yeah, I think, no, no, that, yeah. that was, no, no, that was, that was Paul, long it and was, winding road. Yeah, but, okay. Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, but the same metaphor, you and I have memories longer than the road that stretches out of here. Mm-hmm. Well, and I'm grateful for it. So, uh, so today, and and some and some of it's actually about like road trips together. In fact, um, and and you and and you and I have done road trips, and oh, we have stories to tell. You know, uh, like 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 the Blues Brothers. You know, yes. Uh, uh, and okay, yes, and there and there's a certain uh, employee of Frontier Airlines that's still hurting from one of them. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. All right. Well, so today we've got a, a potpourri. Um, we're going to talk about some stuff in the news, uh, including some developments on uh, Moore versus Harper that we'll save for the end of the podcast. And first, I just want to give our audience a quick update on Everscholar. We told you earlier that the uh, course, the April course on uh, statesmanship and its practitioners would be launching, which it, which it has. And enrollment is very brisk. There's only about uh, two spots left in that program. So if anyone remains interested in, which I'm sure many are, go to everscholar.org and you can still register. There's just a couple of spots left. Um, and we're, uh, by the time this airs, I think we will have launched a very, very exciting program in Italy, which is going to take place from May 28th to June 11th, um, which is called Everything Past is Present, Rome and Florence as Theaters of the Mind. Just an incredible program to see these these cities in a way that you and probably almost no one has ever seen before. 
um, with fantastic faculty. There's a lot of information about it on the Every Scholar website. So please go check that out because that one too is going to fill very quickly. And uh, it, it, I can't tell you how excited I am about this program. Okay. So what else is in the news? Well, you know, I think that uh, 2024 elections uh, beckon and the parties are positioning themselves. And a couple of ways that, uh, that we see uh, positioning going on is each party's trying to claim the mantle of the protector of free expression. And each party is trying to claim the mantle of proper views of the Constitution and other uh, important aspects of American life. And this finds its way um, into the news periodically. And one thing I think we see is that, and we saw it even in our last episode when we talked uh, with Professor Kim Roosevelt about his interpretation of the sort of flow of American history from the Declaration to the Constitution to Reconstruction and beyond. And, uh, you know, we had some debates about, um, you know, what's the proper way to view these documents. And and, um, even as learned uh, an individual as Professor Roosevelt had uh, some points that, that we took issue with. And I think in the end, one of the things that was very important, which we've said again and again, is you have to know your history. You, ha- you know, we need to at least have you know, a common frame of reference about these documents, a certain level of truth um, about what do they say, what don't they say. And this is, this is I wouldn't say it's up for debate, but it's fre- they're frequently misquoted, shall we say. And uh, Akhil, you came across a, uh, uh, an incident this week that uh, in your perusing of the left-wing and right-wing media, uh, that uh, struck you. So, Andy, the podcast is not just an opportunity for us to share some of our ideas with the audience. It's also a learning experience for both of us. Mm-hmm. Um, and the conversations that we had with Kim were really great because of those conversations, I started to go back and and look at things that um, that I needed to to research more carefully. And especially because I'm going to be talking about some of these issues about all men are created equal and what that means. And and the whole issue of uh, slavery, these are hugely central themes for the, the book in progress, the words that made us equal. So after the conversations with Kim, I started reading a book that I had only skimmed when it first came out. Very important book by a very distinguished historian at Princeton. He's uh, uh, won top prizes, I believe, the Bancroft. His name is Sean Willens. We've talked about him on previous episodes. He and I agree on some things. We disagree on others. He and I have similar views about the 1619 Project. We're both critical of it, as is Gordon Wood, as is Jim Oaks. Kim was more celebratory of 1619. So Sean and I have both believed that the American Revolution was not, in its essence, pro-slavery. We both actually emphasize that immediately upon revolting, Americans in the North initiate abolition projects. 
And he and I, Sean and I, have different views about how to think about the three-fifths clause and its relationship to the Electoral College and whether the Constitution was structurally pro slavery or not but because of the conversation handy that we had conversations that you and i had with kim i realized i needed to to read with much more care a book that I, again i had only skimmed that sean has written called no property in man the subtitle is slavery and anti-slavery at the nation's founding now i agree with some things in the book and i disagree with others i'm in the middle of it and and by the way uh sean if you're out there we'd love to have you as a guest on the podcast, have the same kind of conversation we had with Kim. You and I have actually debated the topic of the Electoral College and slavery, not just in the pages of the New York Times. You wrote an op-ed, I wrote a response, <laughs> you you um, jumped back in. But we've also debated it uh, head-to-head, one-on-one, friend-to-friend before the New York Historical Society. And, and we could, we could debate it and other things and discuss other things on the podcast. Um, and I'm, I'm enjoying reading your, your new book. Again, areas of agreement and disagreement. But Andy, this is because of your and my conversations with Kim that that's what I've been doing for the last week or so. And I ran across a footnote in an endnote, actually. In Sean's book, it's at page 329 of his book, No Property in Man. And it's about the publication of Madison's notes in 1840. And that's actually how I end my last book. It ends in 1840. And I say one really important thing that happens is Mad- Madison's notes from the Philadelphia Convention are published. And, and that's a, an important development in constitutional discourse. And Sean agrees. He, he has, a, I think, a slightly different sense of the significance of, of this treasure trove of, of, of material. But um, anyway, footnote 40 of Sean's book says, on the publication of Madison's notes and its importance, see Michael Kamen, uh, a machine that would go of itself, the Constitution in American culture. It's a 1986 book, he says, especially at pages 87 to 91. So I have that book. I have it in my um, uh, home library, and I had looked at it um, way back when. It's a book about the American Constitution in um American culture. The book, actually, this, uh, the title is A Machine That Would Go of Itself. The subtitle is The Constitution in American Culture. Cayman was an historian. He's, he's now deceased. He was a student of Bernard Balin, as is Gordon Wood, as was Pauline Mayer, as is Jack Raycove. Um, we've talked about these people again and again on our podcast. And I had long ago sort of looked at the book, but Cayman is, is, is not really talking about what the Constitution, quote, really, unquote, means the way a law professor might, but he's talking about how the Constitution has been uh, an important cultural artifact, has been discussed um, in American discourse. Well, actually, th- given my new book project, you realize I should take another look at Cayman, and Sean reminded me of that. Okay, that's the long wind-up for Let me just ask um, you before you get pitch. into that. Before you get into the book itself, do you feel that this is a different idea than the subtitle of your book, America's Constitutional Conversation? So, you know, here you're talking about sort of a conversation about the Constitution, I guess, in culture. Is that different from from what you mean when you say constitutional conversation? 
There's a lot of overlap. The big difference, and this is what I'm going to get into, is that for all their achievement, and Cayman was a very distinguished historian. He won the Pulitzer Prize for, for another book, you know, um, not law trained. And I'm actually trying to analyze things through the lens of both history and law. And it makes a difference. And I'm about to show you, you know, in part why it makes a difference. Because I've thought a lot about originalism and how to do it. I've thought a lot about the significance of debates from the Philadelphia Drafting Convention, which were not immediately made public. Madison's notes aren't published until 1840. What's the significance of these notes for proper legal interpretation? And and the historians might have views on all of that, might talk about all that, but I, as a law person who does law every day and, and makes arguments in amicus briefs and elsewhere for judges and justices, think about it a little in a slightly more a professional and, and precise way, perhaps. So I'm particularly interested in my book in how the constitutional amendments come about because they're constitutional law in a way that just mere conversations about the Constitution aren't quite the same thing as, as formal amendments, the Reconstruction Amendments that Kim and I, for example, and you all, you know, we all discussed. Sean Wilentz is as distinguished an historian as there is. He's at, at, at Princeton. Um, he studied actually under the great David B. Davis at Yale History Department. You know, the, the most credentialed historian. So the Columbia undergrad, you know, if you're looking at just um, elitist credentials, Yale graduate school under the great Sterling professor of history, student of American slavery, the late great David B. Davis. Now at Princeton, Bancroft Prize, book after book after book. Very, very distinguished, but not law trained. And I think it actually does make a difference. He looks at things differently than the way I do. Now, Michael Kamen, you know, Harvard trained Bernard Balin protege, Cornell uh, professor, Pulitzer Prize. This is a, and this book is really, really well respected and prominent, a machine that would go of itself, Constitution American culture. So I look at the exact pages that Sean is citing to, and here's, you know, how it begins. Delegates to the Philadelphia Convention made a gentleman's agreement that their discussions would be private and that no disclosure of what had transpired should take place for half a century. And I'm thinking, gee, I didn't know that quite, and there's no citation to it. It's possible that there was a gentleman's agreement that's different from the rules of the convention about secrecy, which I'm going to explain in just a, a minute, but okay, uh, but there's no citation. Then next paragraph. For 34 years, participants kept the faith and maintained their silence. Now, I know that this is completely false. And it's one of the big themes of my recent book, The Words That Made Us. And I have a two-page endnote where I say, here were the rules of secrecy of the convention itself. While people were talking, no one could leak. But then on the last, without the approval of the convention itself, and on the last day of the convention, there's actually a vote to lift the secrecy ban. And immediately there, you could say, well, there still was a gentleman's agreement. Well, immediately, and while the convention met, people actually did observe this ban of silence um, as a general matter. And immediately thereafter, they start to tell friends things, including James Madison himself. Is he, he tells Jefferson in a series of letters during written during the convention, which is meeting from late May to mid-September, sorry, I can't tell you anything. Sorry, I can't tell you anything. 
Um, there's a series of letters. And then after September 17th, he starts to tell Jefferson, here's why we did this and here's why we did that. And he's not alone. A whole bunch of delegates do that, including Ben Franklin, who allows his speech at the very end of the Philadelphia Convention saying, listen, let's all, you know, it's, it's imperfect, but it's as good as we're going to do. Let's, let's all support it. He allows that to be published and it's published in newspapers up and down the continent. And it's an inspired leak, you know, an authorized leak, we would say. And that's many, many other Philadelphia delegates who kept mum during the convention, but then started spilling the beans about what, what their position was, what other people's position was, why we did this, why we didn't do that immediately. And I have a two page end note in the words that made us documenting all of this. So what Michael Kamen says in this really important book is completely false. And lots of people have echoed this. Um, Noah Feldman, Jill Lepore. And, and, and I had forgotten that Cayman had said this. Now I know why these distinguished scholars have, have said it because they were relying on Cayman who doesn't have an, uh, an end note. And, but, and it's possible there was such a gentleman's agreement, but here's what's not true. And it matters to the legitimacy of the whole thing and whether it was a, a, a coup d'etat, how democratic or, or not it was. Fourth, here's the sentence again at page 86 of Cayman's book. Very distinguished book, very distinguished, you know, the, 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 the most prestigious author imaginable. For 34 years, participants kept the faith and maintained their silence. Utterly not true. And one of the things I actually say, because my friend Andy Lipka encouraged me to do this, is in the afterwards to the book, the postscript actually highlights some of the important new things that are in the book. And that's one of the things that I actually highlight because truthfully, I hadn't quite known, you know, exactly what the rules of engagement were, the rules of secrecy before I researched the project. And once I realized what they actually were, which is to repeat complete cone of silence while the meeting was ongoing and then complete freedom to, to, to say whatever, as soon as the document went public, I thought, wow, those are actually sensible rules of engagement. And I didn't know that clearly, um, two years ago, when I, three years ago, when I started researching the book and I'd seen people like Noah Feldman and Jill Lepore, very, you know, uh, distinguished scholars, both, both at Harvard say to the contrary, I thought it's really important to set the record straight for my fellow Americans on this topic. Now you say that it's important because it, it go, first of all, we want to be correct in general, but but this particular yes. point is important, you said, because it goes to sort of the legitimacy of the of the debate that went on in the ratification. Can you can you elaborate on that? You know, wh- why do who you know, if you say, well, you know, nobody said anything for 50 years. What are the consequences of that error? Because I'm not sure because because secrecy requires just justification. Democracies die in secrecy. Sunlight is the best disinfectant. We're an open and transparent society. And so if this cone of silence and the cone, so cones of silence need to be defended. I believe in cones of silence um, for certain purposes. The justices, while they are deliberating, keep their own counsel and try to prevent leaks. That's Dobbs. 
okay, that the other, what made it unusual is that there was a leak while the deliberations were ongoing. And I do believe that when you're actually trying to cut a deal of a certain sort or think about things, it's useful to, to sometimes have a cone of silence so that deliberation can be more candid. Andy, our audience may not know, but we sometimes pull certain things out of the podcast because I, I said something stupid. You know, I made a mistake. You know, I changed my mind on something because you, sh- you, you show me that what I said was stupid. And I said, okay, you're right. Let's pull that one out. Okay. And it's going to be harder for us to have actually a candid conversation if any blooper of mine, you know, is immediately uploaded. Okay. So I can, so there are deliberative virtues, even democratic virtues to have a cone of silence while people are, are thinking things through. So they can float a position and then change their mind. What's extraordinary about the constitution is that there was a decision made that as soon as the, there's a final public version, actually silence is no longer appropriate. And actually people are free to, to say what their initial position was or why this or that. Now there might be an additional gentleman's agreement. Let's, let's not criticize each other, um, in, in, in certain ways. Um, but in fact, from the beginning, there was lots of leaking. Now, let's go back to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court doesn't have those rules of engagement. The Supreme Court has more of the gentleman's agreement that you're not supposed to spill for the next 50 years. So it's interesting to talk to, for, for, for us to try to decide, are those the correct rules of engagement on the Supreme Court, the correct rules of secrecy? When should the public be let in and when should the public be excluded? My big point is the Constitution was way more transparent. The Philadelphia Convention was way more transparent than what many people, including most distinguished scholars, appear to think. From the beginning, lots of the framers actually published accounts of what they had said and other people had said only weeks before. You know, you say that, well, during the convention... You know, we want to keep it secret so that people feel free to to make, you know, present their ideas and let them be bandied about and sort of let the the marketplace of ideas within the convention decide what's what's best and that's fine. Um, they, okay, but even even if the stuff is disclosed later, it still has implications. For example, you know, Hamilton gets kind of branded a, a royalist, you know, because of some of the things that he said, you know, during the convention. Um, so there's still consequences for it later from a political point of view. And you do, th- and it's likely that the people that are in this room are going to be running for office later. So, so there, there's still consequences. So in a sense, um, you could argue that there would be a benefit to secrecy later. Um, you know, there, so, but so, so, so that it makes that statement credible, but it, it happens to be false. Now, the other, now I can hang, also hang think on, Andy, of, just on the, on, on that, the, the, um, I, I, and you're, it's brilliant what you just said. And I, I think there are a couple of different considerations and I talk about them in this end note. So the strict rule of secrecy is you can't talk about anything, um, while the convention is ongoing. Now, afterward, there could be, in addition, a gentleman's agreement that you won't criticize other people in, in certain ways, in part because if you do that, then they'll, they'll go after you and, and, and the rest. But actually, some of the things that, that actually did appear 
right from the get-go were quite critical. Luther Martin, for example, who goes after Oliver Ellsworth, who in turn goes after Luther Martin. But here's what Hamilton himself, you know, did. he got very hot under the collar in July 1788 in the New York ratifying convention when he thought someone was kind of criticizing uh, some positions that he had taken at Philadelphia. So here's actually what I say about this. Hamilton himself believed that he should not name names and disclose details of individual speeches made, especially trial balloons floated by others behind closed doors. So he's free to talk about some things, but, but that he thought might go too far. Even while taking this position, he disclosed information about closed door votes and positions in broad, impersonal terms. So, which he couldn't do during the convention itself. So, you, you know, you, again, these are such subtle distinctions, but now I'm, I'm figuring out what did he think the, the proper rules of engagement were, you know, as a gentleman. Hamilton also thought post-convention disclosures casting disrepute upon individual delegates, especially upon himself, he was always prickly about his honor, were, quote, highly improper and uncandid, unquote. That's what he says publicly. This was the nub of his dispute with Lansing in late June 1788. See Hamilton's um, fourth speech of June 28, 1780. I said July, I should have said uh, June, my, my mistake. Some of Hamilton's concerns may have stemmed not from the specific rules promulgated at Philadelphia, but rather from more general norms of conduct among gentlemen. And then I added, norms not unrelated to the code duello. You see, because gentlemen don't actually say unkind things about other gentlemen. And if they do, there can be consequences. I now think, in effect, there are two things going on. There are the strict rules of the convention itself of secrecy, and they lapsed on the last day, and they actually took a vote on that. I think there was maybe a gentleman's understanding of a certain sort, but it wasn't, you can't say anything at all. It was, there are some limits on the sorts of things that gentlemen say and don't say about each other. Well, I think um, so it would be permissible to say, for example, with someone else's permission, gee, this was your position and this was mine. Okay. Which you couldn't do during the convention itself. The two of you couldn't agree to do that. The convention rules are you can't say anything until we've gone public. But here's what's not true. What Michael Kamen says, for 34 years, participants kept the faith and maintained silence. Not at all. Jefferson is getting all the details, all the, the dirt, all the specifics in letters from Madison written in the fall of 1787. Well, I think that you know, if we look at it in terms of the purposes of such an agreement, like what would best, so what are the goals here? Number one, we want to have the, the most open debate we can with all the ideas aired during the convention. So we want that right. to happen. So, so, so to that end, you know, we don't want there to be, we don't want, you know, pu- sort of public opinion intruding, um, you know, in a, in a, know sort of populist way um before the convention is is over but then we we want the public to be informed so that they can weigh in you know afterwards okay so that's that's one thing and the other thing is we the other thing that would encourage that end is to have individuals not worried about damage to their personal careers and reputations 
which again would serve the purpose of open debate. It's not just a gentle. It's not just a matter of, of gentlemen, you know. Of okay, here's a code of gentlemanly behavior, but rather what encourages debate during the convention. And I think consequences mm-hmm. after the convention um, would be part of that. So the best way to assure that would be to say, okay, you can talk about the ideas afterwards, but you can't personalize them. And that's so, and and that's exactly and that's Hamilton's idea. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and you can't even personalize it if it's not uh, critical or it's with someone else's permission. Right, right. Yeah, you can say like this guy joined me on this or something like that. But even there, you probably would want his permission. Okay, so yeah, at least implicit, you know. Think okay, you know, Andy's not going to be upset if I tell Vanitha what Andy just you know told me. Right. So so I would go right. So so those are probably so I think we're in agreement there. Okay. Now, my question to you, uh, which I don't think we fully answered, um, goes to the harm in in historical misinterpretations of this, such as you um, just read. I mean, one thing that I can think of is, you know, Madison, you talk about in your book how Madison holds onto his notes for a long time, and you say it's not because of this, of any agreement, but rather because he wants to control the story for historic for posterity he, so he, he wants waits to be for last. everyone to, to die the last word yes right. he, he is the longest lived of the, of the one and he waits for everyone to die so they can't contradict him and people like mary sarah builder who has written a, she's a very distinguished historian she's won a bankrupt prize she's a a, a dear friend and and actually blurbed the, the latest book the words that made us she she's actually on the back cover as a blurber uh, and she in her book madison's hands suggests that madison actually shaded and fudged things here and there to make himself look better in various ways and wanted and, and waited to the end to so that he couldn't be contradicted but said publicly um, wrote a letter to a guy named thomas ritchie in the 1820s saying oh there's this um kind of um, here's what he, he says and, and he's just not maybe completely candid about why he's holding back he says the following in in a letter and and came and quotes it letter of 1821 in general, it had appeared to me, that is James Madison, it might be best to let the work, that is his notes, be a posthumous one, or at least this publication should be delayed till the convention should be well settled by practice. Okay, because this shouldn't affect this, this um, what was secret and what not known to the, the public when they ratified shouldn't affect proper constitutional interpretation. I'm with Madison on that. Until a knowledge of controversial part of the proceedings of its framers could be turned to no improper account. Okay, but now here's that's a good reason. You know, if I if I publish this stuff, some people will erroneously tr- treat it as legally significant when it shouldn't be because the people didn't have access to these notes until now. Next sentence. Delicacy also seemed to require some respect to the rule by which the convention, quote, prohibited a promulgation without leave of what was spoken in. That's the convention's rule, which was abandoned, you see, on the last day. It was a formally rescinded, but he's quoting this formal rule. But then here's where he says it's, it's subtly um, put. So long as the policy of that rule could be regarded as in any degree unexpired. So I think he's actually conceding that the rule did expire, but maybe some of the reasons behind some aspects of the rule might might still be applicable. Um, but I think in part he, he wants to wait basically so that he can't be contradicted. Well, and I think, but this, he doesn't want to say that. Right. You know? Right. We need to analyze Madison's motivations carefully because when we do, it it helps us tell whether or not we should give 
him more credit or less credit or, or more credibility or less credibility. So if he's publishing this many years later because he believes that this is the agreement, then we that's laudable and we would give him more credibility in what he's saying. On the other hand, if he's publishing it late because he wants the last word and he doesn't want to be contradicted, um, that sent, tends to detract from his credibility that he can't stand up to debate. Um, and the fact that he... <laughs> that um, this author has now identified these alterations, you know, which presumably are deliberate, um, that, for, that favors the second explanation and detracts from his credibility. So all this, I think, matters uh, when, we try to, when authors try to use the notes as evidence of one thing or another. That's why, so that's why your, Builder, your work matters, I think, there. Mary Sarah Builder wins, um, I think it's the Bancroft Prize for this book, Madison's Hand. That's the, the book, and it's entirely about Madison's revisions of the notes. That's the entire book is is about, and what she shows just undeniably, um, and what I have been able to confirm, and what Michael Kamen apparently didn't know, is Madison is sharing all this stuff with Jefferson very early on. So he's writing letters that summarize. The, the big issues in the fall of 1787, just weeks after the convention. Later, he gives Jefferson all the notes. Jefferson and Jefferson makes copies of some of this stuff. And she says this is genuinely useful political information for Jefferson to have to know who said what, where they're coming from, what they really wanted. This is this is great political intelligence that Madison is sharing with Jefferson, which he wouldn't be allowed to do if there were some absolutely strict ban, but there isn't. OK, so so he's giving Jefferson, you know, um, uh, the, the leaked drafts, so to speak, way before he's giving the public the leaked drafts. It's only useful to Jefferson politically if it's true. In, in other words, if it's. Accurate. Yes. So that would. So. Um, so, so but so this is this is uh, in, in Mary Sarah Builder's book. Jefferson is getting versions before Madison. Madison is continually fiddling with the notes. But the fiddling, the main fiddling with the notes that she calls attention to occur um, decades after he gives the stuff to Jefferson, uh, if my memory serves, as soon as Jefferson gets back from Paris, because this is useful information for Jefferson in Lynn Miranda's uh, terminology. You know, what did I miss? Mm-hmm. OK, because Jefferson wasn't around you know, and, and Madison is filling him in on all the, you know, the stuff that happens. And here's where all the bodies are buried. Here's, you know, what, what Hamilton really, you know, thought and, and, and said at, at Philadelphia. And here's where Governor Morris was on these issues. And, and, and here's where the Pinckneys um, were and so on. That's genuinely useful information. And, and Mary Sarah Bilda says later on, especially on issues related to slavery, Madison sort of uh, trims and, and cuts and nips and tucks in, in, in certain ways to, so that so his position seems more principled and, and more coherent. So audience, you know, now you, you have a, an example of something where, you know, Akil is, is we're doing the podcast and we're having this debate with Professor Roosevelt and Meanwhile, he's writing his book, Achilles, and uh, so some of these things remind him of this book that he started from Sean Valence. He goes back and reads that, then it's connected to this, and finally, it goes back to this theme, the words that made us, and you could say, oh, if people just had read this book and, and understood this, then this 
this uh, error would have been avoided. And, and we've now explained why that has consequences. Okay, so now it's later in the week, and Akil is doing what he does, which is reading the press uh, from New York Times, Washington Post, but also to see what people on the right are saying. What about, uh, you know, what's, what's on Fox News these days? You know, what, what do people consider important there? And he comes across this, this clip, um, this article in this clip, and it actually rings a few bells because people are talking about the Declaration and the Constitution, and they're saying things that he finds a little strange. And then who's saying it? Well, let's look at that. And, oh, they may be related to other people that are saying things that are... So, so this is all interconnected. So let's take you through the, uh, the mind of <laughs> Akhil Amar, you know, as he listens um, to this clip. And Andy, just to highlight, yes, uh, we in this podcast try to have conservative voices and liberal voices and everyone in between. We think our audience spans the spectrum and that's great you know we've we've done events with fed sock folks and with very prominent liberals this is your podcast for to hear linda greenhouse and ed whalen to hear the fed sock folks and gary hart and to and in connection with that every day i try to yeah, sample the media so i do read the new york times i do read the wash po but i also look at fox and it's interesting to me for at least two reasons. I'm interested in the conversation. And I'm also in the new book, seeing how the very same events in newspapers in the 1840s and 50s are being depicted, spun, as it were, different ways by newspapers. This is nothing new. But I'm interested today in at least two phenomena, because the, the, the book is all about, and, and the previous one, American newspapers and, and our media culture. One, how the very same stories are treated very differently, different spin, but two, how different news outlets actually don't even agree on what the news is, what the what most important thing that happened yesterday or, or, or last week really was. So Fox had a story that the other, that the Wash Poe and the New York Times weren't even covering. And it actually seems like a very interesting story to me. They're interested in culture wars of a certain sort, which are very different sometimes than the culture wars that the New York Times wants to cover. Right, so that's, that's the backstory. Yeah, and that's what we were getting out at, at the beginning of the podcast when we talked about, you know, the, the run up to the elections and this how, how the Constitution Declaration are almost uh, being weaponized in some some sense. Okay, so this came from an article uh, on Fox News, which was titled, Education Board Member Gets Booted After Defending Constitution Speaking Out Against Socialism. Okay, so that's the title of the article. So there was a meeting of the um, Virginia Board of Education, and apparently the governor gets to appoint at least some of the members. I don't know the details, but he appointed a woman named Dutta, Mrs. Dutta, um, back in July. And she's speaking here. And uh, so they have a clip here. So we'll play this little um, conversation. And then Akhil she, will She's an immigrant on. from India and very reminiscent for me of people in my own family. Okay, so let's hear what she has to say. Actually, not just she, but also the person that she's having a colloquy with. That person is Ann Holton. So we'll identify her further later. 
So the, the board is debating at this point the this document, which is called the History and Social Science Standards of Learning for Virginia Public Schools, and it's dated January 2023. And it's a lengthy document, 70-page document. Um, but at one point in there, um, there's a statement principles. of principles. And, uh, yeah, foundational and principles. I'm well, sorry. The, it's headed principles. And, the, okay. and they say... The foundation principles for these history and social science learning standards include, and then they have a number of bullet points. Uh, so, Andy, just to pick up on, on that. So, Governor, Governor Yunkin is entitled to appoint folks to the state board of education, and they need to be confirmed by the Senate of Virginia. Dutta, who is um, an immigrant from India, was, I guess, on the, the board, and the board composed these kind of educational principles, these bullet points for use in Virginia. And then there's this board of education debate about whether these are, are proper bullet points, and um, that's where there's this Holton data exchange. And then the following week, the uh, Democratic-controlled Senate in Virginia actually declines to confirm uh, data. Uh, she's, I think, the one person or one of a very few people, at least, whom they basically say, no, we're, n- we're not going to confirm her, at least not now. So the educational principles, these bullet points, are supposed to be the foundational principles for history and social science learning in, in public schools, you know, includes several things. So here are just a few of them. Individual liberty and representative government are cornerstones of the American way of life. So that's one. We aspire to live up to the founders' ideals for a society that recognizes all the individuals are created equal. You know, so that's another one. Here's another one. America is exceptional and not perfect. Here's another one. From 13 diverse colonies to a unified nation, e pluribus unum, out of many one, has always been our strength. Immigrants from around the world continue to come to our shores, seeking freedom and opportunity to build a better life and have contributed to our communities and added to the rich history of achievement in our country. So those are some of them, just to give you a sense of the context. Uh, But there were two that were bones of contention between Holton and Dutta in this Board of Ed meeting. Here are the two. And these are quotes. One. The Declaration of Independence and the Constitution are remarkable documents that provide the freedoms and framework for our constitutional republic. So that's one. And here's a second one. Centralized government planning in the form of socialism or communist political systems is incompatible with democracy and individual freedoms. Okay, so that's the background. And then we have this colloquy between uh, Mrs. Dutta and also um, Ann Holton. Uh, And so here it is. To an audience as inclusive as our Virginia is, you cannot reference the Declaration of Independence and Constitution as remarkable documents without also acknowledging that they contain fundamental flaws of enshrining slavery and limiting the protections that they provided for only to white propertied men. I, I just, I can't, I'm not comfortable with that language. I'm not comfortable with the language of, of uh, centralized government planning in the form of socialism or communist political systems is incompatible with democracy. I, I, would, I would concede on communism, 
but there are plenty of governments that call themselves socialist democratic governments. Uh, so, you know, what is socialism compatible with democracy? That would be a great debate to have in a, um, a 12th grade government uh, mm -hmm. civics class. Um, the Declaration and the Constitution, I think it's, they're remarkable documents. I, I don't, do not believe the Declaration and Constitution enshrined slavery, um, nor did they limit protections to white propertyed men. As far as the uh, socialism or communist, I think socialism is just about as bad as, as communism. Socialism is like the nanny state, which predominates in so many parts of the world. It's, it co-ops the important decisions belonging to families and individuals. I, I come from a country which used to be more socialistic now than, you know, then than it is now, but it's, it is, it creates dearth dependency and depression. Okay, so so there you have it. I think that uh, you know the 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 discussion is is interesting because I think that um, well, from my point of view, they're each wrong on one of them, <laughs> you know, in terms of of what they're saying. Um, so, but I'll leave it to you, Akil, to analyze. I think I'm with you actually on what you say. So let's start with actually identifying the cast of characters just a little bit more. So who's Ann Holton? Ann Holton came within a whisker of being a second lady of the United States. She is married to Tim Kaine, who was Hillary Clinton's running mate. And they got more votes, millions more votes for the presidency and the vice presidency in 2016 than did Donald Trump and Mike Pence. Okay, so that got my attention because I know who Ann Holton is. And I also know who Ann Holton is because her father was governor of Virginia, recently passed away, a, a great and progressive governor who created a biracial coalition, a, a, a Democrat who helped bring the Democratic Party into proper, respectful relationship with African-Americans, which has not been true of the Democratic Party, especially in Virginia, for much of its history. You see, it goes through people like, well, the people we're going to be talking about, like uh, Jefferson and, and, and Madison and others um, that we have been talking about. Who else is Ann Holton? She is the sibling of a Bancroft Prize winning historian named Woody Holton, who has written a couple of books about the revolution, at least about the revolution, the Constitution. And one has the word Constitution in its uh, title, Unruly Americans and the Origins of the Constitution. And I've read the book and I have thoughts about it. And another more recently by Woody Holton is Liberty is Sweet, the Hidden History of the American Revolution. And Woody Holton is a leading proponent of and um, advocate of the 1619 project. So now you see how all this is kind of getting my attention. Oh, I, <laughs> you've got on the one hand, you know, Ann Holton as the establishment, um, you know, uh, of the Democratic Party. And on the other hand, at least, you know, her brother is the left wing of the Democratic Party. Dare I say it, the socialist wing of the, of the Democratic Party. And of course, Akil, she has these relations, but she herself is quite a significant individual, quite accomplished in her own right. Right you are, Andy, and you've actually done some research on this. This this is what I did not know. I knew about um, Governor Holton and Senator Kane and Professor Woody Holton, um, but she is a very substantial person in her own right, and let's also talk about that. 
Right. So she, um, and I have to say that my research consisted of Wikipedia, but nevertheless, <laughs> she, um, she attended uh, Princeton, where she graduated magna cum laude, and then she went to the Harvard Law School. She then clerked for judge on the U.S. District Court. She became the Education Secretary of Virginia, and eventually she was the uh, interim president of George Mason University. So quite accomplished. And let's talk about just a couple of those things, because if you're a lawyer and a clerk, then typically you take an oath to the Constitution, um, an oath of fidelity. It's a remarkable document in that lots and lots of people have to take an oath to it. And if you are um, a prominent public official in your own right, a secretary of education at the state level, um, interim president of a university, you're an important educator. And one of the things, Andy, you and I have been talking about is sort of wokeness in the academy in, in certain ways. It's a very hard job. Uh, you get criticized if you're too far on one side and criticized if you're too far on, on the other side. Um, and so it is a, a, a delicate balance here. Um, but but wow, what an extraordinary individual that, that, that we have here to, to talk about in her own right and in her connections to um, all sorts of other folks. So that got my attention on the one side. And on the other side, uh, what got my attention is Detta is herself an immigrant American who has a certain uh, perspective on America. Again, not that different from the perspective of my, of my own family who well, were immigrants. Okay, so that's the background. That's this is why. Oh, this was very and and New York Times couldn't find a story on it. Maybe they covered it, but I missed it. I didn't really find much in in Washpo. And thank you, Fox, because this is really interesting that Anne Holton believes. Because here's where I'm not with her. She thinks it's somehow problematic to just say the following, which doesn't seem to me problematic at all. It seems almost self-evident to borrow an expression. The Declaration of Independence and the Constitution are remarkable documents that provide the freedoms and frameworks for our constitutional republic. Now, here's what it doesn't say. It doesn't say they're flawless documents. It doesn't say they're perfect documents. It doesn't say, actually, even that um, we're just focused on the original Constitution as opposed to the entire Constitution. Remember, Kim and I talked about the whole Constitution, and that includes the Reconstruction Amendments and women's suffrage and 20th century amendments, MLK-inspired amendments. So what if you actually think that civics in America today should not actually focus on the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution as genuinely remarkable documents, you've got your, you know, Head in, the, well, I won't say where you have your head, um, in the sand or, you know, or somewhere else. And if you don't think that these provide the freedoms and framework for our constitutional republic, well, they, they do provide the basic, you know, framework. Um, you can't talk about America as a constitutional republic without talking about and being familiar with, conversant with the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution. So, gee, if you're going to take issue with that, what civics supposed to be about? So on that one, Andy, I'm, I'm, t I, I would just wonder what Holton is thinking about, and and I'm going to tell you what I think she's thinking about. Well, I think I would, she may I would actually. Say that, I would say that some of this comes from the sorts of things that we were talking about with Professor Roosevelt. You know, what does the Declaration stand for? Does the Declaration properly? 
um, should we properly look at it as a source of American values? Same with the Constitution. Um, These are the very things that we were talking about, and that's, I would say, why these discussions matter. Now, you can say, look, the Constitution is flawed, the Constitution has three-fifths, it's pro-slavery, it has, you know, various, you know, uh, objectionable uh, propositions and components, and that's that's perfectly fine, but that none of that contradicts the statement that it's A, remarkable, and B, um, provides freedoms, and C, provides a framework for our constitutional republic. So, and, and Andy, indeed, I said all of those things, that the three-fifths and all the rest. Here's actually the, the book that I wrote, America's Constitution, a biography, in the postscript, here's actually what I said. It's, it's remarkable how on point it is. I said, my narrative has notable themes. I claim that the Founders' Constitution was more democratic, more slavocratic, and more geostrategically inspired than is generally recognized, and that subsequent amendments, which are part of the Constitution, you see, deepened the document's democratic and geostrategic dimensions while eventually reversing its slavocratic tilt. And I said, but my largest claim is simply this. This is, I, I have to sum up what the whole book is in, in, in one sentence in the, in the postscript. Here's my largest claim. So I do say it's democratic, it's, it's slavocratic, it's geostrategic, and more so, more democratic than we've understood, more pro-slavery than we've understood, and more about national security, and the Reconstruction reverses that pro-slavery tilt. So those are my biggest themes, substantively, but even bigger, my largest claim is simply this. America's Constitution deserves careful study and still has much to teach us if we would but listen. In other words, it's a remarkable document. It deserves, we should remark upon it. Footnote, though this thesis may seem banal, it runs counter to strong trends in recent scholarship. And then I quote, I cite three people, Richard Posner, Michael Klarman, not to be confused with Michael Kamen and David Strauss. So that's, you know, the fundamental thesis of my book is because if it's not remarkable, why am I writing books about it? You know, why am I hoping that my fellow citizens will read books about it? If it's not remarkable, of course, it's remarkable now. I mean, um, technically remarkable means that it's worthy of remarking about it. Yes. So even yes, if you were critical you- of it, you would it would be worthy of, of remark. But but even but the connotation is a positive one. And and I think that that's um, you know what she's objecting to. And it doesn't say the problem. original Constitution. No, it says the Constitution, which of course includes the amendments. And and again, what are we comparing it to? What in the history of humanity is perfect? Anything? Just name me anything, Ms. Holton. Anything at all. So your objection, in my view, is not well taken on that one. But. I understand where it may be coming from. And and here I may overstep because this is arguably guilt by association. But your brother, Woody Holton, who is a very distinguished historian and who is absolutely welcome to come on this podcast. We just, you know, we earlier invited Sean uh, Willens to come. Professor Holton, we'd love to have you on. And you and Sean Willens are on different sides on the 1619 debate. And I'm with Sean on that one in the main. But actually, when it comes to whether the Constitution is pro-slavery, I'm on your side on that, you know, compared to Sean Willens. So so come on the podcast. Let's actually hash these things out the same way we did with Kim Roosevelt. But Woody Holton wrote a book. 
he wrote a Bancroft prize-winning book, of um, biography of Abigail Adams, and that's fine. But then he actually started talking about, you know, my stuff, the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence, and, oh, I have some issues. So he wrote a book with the words the Constitution in the title, Unruly Americans and the Origins of the Constitution. And I'm going to read you a couple of passages from it because they are coming from the same place that Ann Holton is. Now, I can't tell you, you know, if she read him or if he was influenced by her or they're getting it from a common source. But Woody Holton says erroneous things about the Constitution in a book in which the words the Constitution appear in the title and the errors all are of a, of a piece. They come, they, they all are asymmetric. They're all kind of anti-Constitution. I'm going to read several passages um, for the audience so, so you can you can decide for yourself. At page 233, in fact, most of the book doesn't talk about the Constitution. He talks about the Constitution at the end, but you put the words the Constitution in the title of a book, you widen your audience. Oh, but then it's fair game for those of us who are scholars of the Constitution and law trained to take issue. Here's the first sentence of the last section of the book, um, which is about the Constitution, the section that begins um, ratification. The Constitutional Convention was largely a response to the farmers' rebellions of the 1780s and the state assembly's subsequent adoption of legislation that allegedly violated public and private contracts. That's the Beardian take on the Constitution. It's all about paper money and Shays' rebellion. And I actually think that Mrs more than it captures, is the fundamental precipitance of the Constitution where the failures of the Articles Confederation to solve the geostrategic national security project. And if you're looking for an event in the in 1786 that is the most important event precipitating the Constitutional Convention, I would say it's not Shays' Rebellion. It's actually New York's refusal to adopt a, an impost amendment to the Articles of Confederation that will bring money into the coffers. And because you need unanimous agreement for an amendment to the Articles, it's now clear that you're never going to get any modification of the Articles. They, they, they can't solve their most fundamental purpose, which is common defense, which requires money, and no money is coming in. And that's actually a more important thing. But even Shays' Rebellion actually has two dimensions. You could think of it as just, you know, a class issue. It's it's the debtors versus the creditors, but it's also a national security issue because actually the Brits in America's backcountry are fomenting discontent because they're trying to break up America. And that's the lens through which people like George Washington actually view the thing. It's not just a class issue. It's a national security issue because, to repeat, the Brits are trying to break away um, um, modern day Vermont and, and Western Pennsylvania and, and, and folks uh, across the Appalachians break them away from actually, um, uh, the American colonies, now free and independent states. So, um, but it's a standard Beardian story that Woody Holton is telling, and I think it misses more than it captures. That's a quote from literally the first sentence of the section where he starts talking about the Constitution from page 233 of his book. Unruly Americans and the Origins of the Constitution. Now, here's another thing that he says. This is page 256, because this is this, this is the same set of critiques you see are very similar to what you heard from Ann Holton. In their desperation to see the Constitution adopted, some Federalists resorted to political chicanery. 
several ratifying conventions. He doesn't specify what that is, except maybe it's a reference to the next sentences. Several ratifying conventions, especially Pennsylvania's and South Carolina's, might have defeated the Constitution if the delegates had been allocated among the sections of the state in proportion to population. Instead, representation was tilted in favor of the eastern regions that favored ratification. Now, this is the passive voice, was tilted, okay? And scholars, uh, historians, narrative historians are often taught to, to say, you know, things in an active way. So that's a tip-off, was tilted, mistakes were made. Who tilted it? He's suggesting that the Federalists did not true, au contraire, mon frere. The apportionment rules for the ratification debates were determined by the, the states themselves, Okay, and some states actually, yes, were malapportioned, but that's not the Federalist fault. That's just the the fault of pre-existing state constitutions. And it is true that in South Carolina, those rules tended to favor the coastal parts of the country that were pro-Federalist. It is also true, Professor Holton, as I explained in a book in 2005, taking on this issue directly that apparently you never read. And I've read your stuff. So please read mine if you're going to take these positions. And that book was, to repeat, 2005. And, and your book appeared, uh, Unruly Americans, after that, 2007. I say, oh, in places like Massachusetts, the apportionment rules actually favored the back country and therefore disfavored the Federalists. So, oh, but but again, you're all your... your Errors and your claims are kind of, they're all asymmetric. They're all kind of against the Constitution. I'm calling you out because this is what I live for. It's really important to me to get facts right. Okay, here's another thing that you say. Now, this is at page 260. It is a remarkable, oh, I like that word. Things are remarkable about the Constitution. But rarely noted irony that Americas owe their most cherished rights among them, freedom of speech and religion, the right to trial by jury, protection against self-incrimination, illegal search and seizure, not to the authors of the Constitution, but to its inveterate enemies. Now, that's a half-truth at best. First of all, the idea that it's rarely noted that the anti-federalists are a big part of the push for the Bill of Rights, really, it's rarely noted, maybe only if you don't pay attention to the literature, because the Biggest book, truthfully, with all due respect, Professor Holton, on the Bill of Rights was written by yours truly. It's called the Bill of Rights. And I, I promise, I, I say, oh, it's the anti-federalists who are pushing for this. But I also say they're not just inveterate enemies of the Constitution. Sometimes they're just skeptics of it. And the Bill of Rights is actually a project of federalists and anti-federalists coming together finding common ground, sweet spot, listening to each other. And all that is part of the ratification process, which is remarkable because there's such give and take and discourse and deliberation. So again, more wrong than right, what you say, and with such an anti-constitutional attitude, what's so remarkable and extraordinary and impressive about the Constitution is that the critics were listened to, you see. And that's a you know big theme of my Bill of Rights book, a big theme of my America's Constitution and Biography work. These are books published in 1998 and 2005, respectively. Very big theme of the new book. Now, here's, I'll, I'll just pick one or two more things you say. You say at page 277, Professor Holton, the very first state law overturned by the U.S. Supreme Court was a Rhode Island measure aimed at protecting a debtor 
from his British creditors. Well, no, that's not even a Supreme Court case. It's a circuit court case. And truthfully, anyone who has spent a week in law school would know the difference. So this is this is embarrassing. And I'm calling you out because actually the historians aren't listening to the law professors at all. And some of us law professors are trying to read the historians uh, very carefully. Here's what you say at the very end of your book. You say, uh, this is the, your last chapter, on page 278, you say that the new national government was by design considerably less responsive to public will than its state-level counterparts. I think that's true, but here's what's also true. It was far more responsive than the Articles Confederation, where you didn't even get to vote for Congress. And there are reasons that representation is going to be more attenuated when you, you have a continental system. You, you, can't, you, you can't have the same proportion of lawmakers to voters in the continent that you can in a in a much smaller state. So you're you're telling like half the story. In my book, I compare the Constitution to state constitutions, but also to the Articles of Confederation. And you say, for example, it spelled the end of annual elections. Well, it didn't spell the end of annual elections. It states actually you know, had annual elections, but actually some of them move away from annual elections. Today, no state legislature, almost no state legislature has annual elections. So maybe actually biannual elections are, are perfectly okay. And there were reasons why it made sense for there to be less frequent federal elections because of travel time and all the rest. I, I, I tell the story of all that. I don't hide that from the reader, but I actually explain what the Fed will say about why they're moving from annual to the biannual elections because of travel time and other things. So you have all these half-truths, and they're all from a certain point of view, and you never tell the reader the other side of the story. The final thing, this is from your epilogue. Many of the amendments that we most cherish today the enfranchisement of African-Americans and women, the direct election of senators and others, do not just add to the Constitution, but directly contradict the framers' anti-democratic intent. Two big questions for you. And come on the podcast and let's debate these, darn it. One, if they had such an anti-democratic intent, why do they allow voters to vote for the House of Representatives when they couldn't under the Articles Confederation? And two, why did they put the Constitution itself to such a remarkably public vote, a vote in which, let's take New York, all adult free male citizens get to vote. No race tests at all. No property tests at all. No religious tests at all. No literacy tests at all. Those are not the ordinary rules of election in New York, Professor, but they were the rules for putting this We the People document to a vote by We the People in eight of the states. Property qualifications were lowered or eliminated compared to what they were ordinarily. And in two other states, the same rules operated, which generally let almost everyone vote in any event, all taxpayers at least. And in no state were they raised. This was at the heart. It was in the first few pages of America's Constitution uh, biography because it's not the standard Beardian story that has been taught. But facts are facts. I put them forward in a prominent place by a, a Yale professor in a random house book, all about the Constitution. And obviously you didn't read the book, fine, but you're, but you're actually putting forth big and false and highly misleading statements of the Constitution, all from a certain point of view, 
you know, because all your errors are asymmetric errors of a certain kind of anti, you know, frankly, it's anti-founding perspective. There's a reason that actually George Washington was unanimously elected and unanimously reelected. Everyone knew he was behind the Constitution. If this was such an anti-democratic project, Professor Holton, why did people all vote for George Washington? Why did they vote for not just the Constitution, because you're saying, oh, well, the fix was in, uh, apportionment rules, but, but why are they voting for the people who give you the Constitution in the first House, in the first Senate, the first presidency? So um, that's all why the name Holton, Ann Holton, caught, caught my eye, got my attention. And I, I think that this, um, you know, sometimes it could sound like, well, read my book, read my book, read my book, but in fact... I think the key here is that you want these people to come on and you want to debate. So in other words, you know, let's put these ideas to a test um, and don't just assume that these are re- questions that are resolved um, uh, or at least that, that, are, that they're resolved in a direction, you know, opposite to these ideas without putting them to the test. And that's what you're hearing in from um, Ms. Holton, you know, on here that, well, yeah. you know, yeah. this is resolved this is, you know, and how can we say this? Because it's contrary to what everyone knows to be true. And, that, and Andy, one, 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 one final point on that. It's not just I'm saying, and I know it sounds like that. Read my book. I'm saying, we've, I've read your book. I've read your books. Um, Andy's read your books. You know, not just me. I, I have Andy, you know, read Kim Roosevelt's book. And my God, Andy read it with much more care than, than I was able to offer. Professor Holden, I have in my hand your new book, Liberty is Sweet, where you say a whole bunch of things about Lord Dunmore. And I have a different take on all of that. But I promise you, I've read your books. That's why I'm giving you chapter and verse from your page. I've actually tried to do you the honor of taking you seriously and frankly taking you on because these debates are now no longer just purely academic debates about critical race theory or 1619 or whether the constitution was or, or was not pro-slavery. I believe the constitution was pro-slavery. On that, Professor Holton, I'm more with you than with Sean Willens. Maybe the three of us should should all do an event together. People would pay for that, you know, um, and it'll be very respectful, but it will be hard hitting because that's how we do things on this podcast. We wrestle facts to the ground and you can have at me just as, you know, much as I've had at you. But in order to do that, yeah, Andy, you're right. They're going to have to read what I what I've written and, and t- take on my my footnotes and facts. Now, look, I mean, sometimes people you meet somebody and they say, oh, come over to my house anytime. And I said, you know, that's not an invitation. You know, when do you want me there? You know, <laughs> you know, what's what, what are we going to do? You know, let, let's let's mm-hmm. so I think, you know, we'll tell our podcast audience we will contact Professor Holton and Professor Willens and issue them yes. actual invitations, not just yes. this open invitation on the podcast. Who knows if they hear it or if anybody tells yes, them about it. We so will. We'll, you're we'll absolutely, you're absolutely right. I haven't met Professor Holton. Sean and I, we debated each other in a very friendly way, and we sat next to each other and hugged each other at the funeral service for our mutual friend and mentor, David B. David. We have a, a lot in common. Actually, when I was in a debate, Sean, at the New York Historical Society, as I was walking out the door, Vanita grabbed me by the shoulders, spun me around, and she said, 
now don't fight. <laughs> so, um, which is what Andy tells me from time to time as well. The people who love me do try to. So you're right, Andy. Sometimes it sounds as if I just say, "Oh, read my book, read my book," but I've read, but I've read theirs, and we can't both be right on some things. So, so let's wrestle the facts to the ground. Facts are stubborn things. Now, you know, to be fair, also, you know, we we highlighted two. Getting back to Ann Holton here, we we highlighted two. Uh, of these principles that they were discussing. And the other one was this one about socialism. And there I'm more with, uh, with Ann Holton, you know, she's saying, look, communism, that's one thing, but socialism, I mean, that's something that should be debated to say that socialism, uh, central government planning is incompatible with democracy and individual freedoms. And, and your response, uh, Mrs. Dada is to say, Oh, that's the nanny state, and this and that, and fine. I mean, you can you're entitled to your opinion, but that's not, you know, this is something that's worthy of debate, and, and the debate belongs in classrooms. So you don't want to be preempting it with a statement that, oh, here's the, the we're not even going to have the debate. Here's the resolution to the debate. That's not the purpose of these kinds of standards, and um, so so I think that uh, I'm with I'm with Ann Holton on that one. Now, you can understand where Mrs. Dada might have some of these opinions as an immigrant from India, where socialism is actually um, ingrained in the Constitution, isn't it? Yes, it's one of the basic pillars. Um, socialism, secularism, democracy. can't remember. The, the, I think there are, there are four or five pillars of the, the Indian Constitution, and, and three of them are socialism, uh, secularism, and uh, democracy. I'm with you on the second one too, and therefore with, with Ann Holton, you say, rightly from a just a purely kind of intellectual point of view, gee, we could have a debate about whether social democracies um, are in the world are uh, workable. I also believe that it's edgier to put into a curriculum a contested current political issue as opposed to, you know, we're going to be studying these documents from history called uh, the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution. Right, I think um, I was saying that as well, that this, yes. is, this is not something we should, it's a debate, we shouldn't seek to resolve it in these standards. But as a political scientist, I'm not going to explain to the audience, because you hear a lot about it, what a wedge issue is. We're recording this the day before the Super Bowl, and you actually did invite people to come to your house at a particular time. It wasn't just, hey, come on over anytime. You said, come, you know, at this time, we're going to watch the Super Bowl together. So, Andy, you're very good at these invitations. And in the Super Bowl, we are going to see quarterbacks try to split the zone, actually. You try to get your receiver in between, you know, two defenders or something. That's what a wedge issue is. A wedge issue in politics is one that ideally where all of the people on your uh, team are in agreement and actually the folks on the other party, the other team are divided. And that's socialism, you see, because there is a socialist wing of the Democrat, self-described socialist wing of the Democratic Party. I, I'm not in it. I don't like it, truthfully. I'm not a Bernie bro. You know, I'm very, I'm not an AOC fan, but I don't think it's sort of proper to use the state power to basically try to drive a wedge between Democrats. Because there are some dem uh, socialist-leaning Democrats and, and other very much anti-socialist Democrats. And, and so Ann Holton gets it just right. Here it's not so much her relationship to her brother, 
um, Woody Holton, but maybe, who knows, it might be her relationship to her spouse, the senator. Or from, the other way around. Uh, she may be the, the policy wonk in the family. You know, abso- I, I wouldn't abso- presume. Yeah. You're absolutely right, Andy, on that. I was just about to say just that. But the Democratic yeah, Party actually... Yes. Okay. (laughs) And that's what this is all about, of course. (laughs) The Democratic Party actually has these two wings. And someone like Tim Kaine, who wants to get reelected, has to be respectful of both wings and not just say at the outset, you know, one side doesn't even have a permissible position because they're un-American. That said, so I'm with Ann Holton on the inappropriateness of, of this in curricular standards. That said, as a Democrat, as a member of the Democratic Party, I think it has been a mistake for us um, Democrats to embrace the label socialism. It used to be a slur, an epithet hurled at us by Republicans. I don't. I think it was a mistake to run away from the word liberal, which is a great word. So I don't describe myself as a progressive. In general, I don't describe myself as a socialist. In general, I say I'm not really a socialist. I am a good old-fashioned liberal, but I'm a good old-fashioned liberal, by the way, and who believes in a thing called social security, which has, which is the same root. And, and, and I believe in certain social solidarity. And there are people I really respect. This has been a big theme and meme of Lawrence O'Donnell over the years that he says there's nothing wrong with socialism because actually we're all social democrats of a certain sort. And the great, many of the great um, European democracies, the party that a modern day U.S. Democrat would find kind of most congenial might be the Social Democratic Party in Germany, for example, and some of these other regimes. So that said, I also understand where uh, Ms. Dutta is, is coming from, because I think socialism of a certain sort was bad for India. The Nehru dynasty pushed this very hard. It's connected to their being non-aligned as between the United States and the USSR, which was the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics. And um, the Nehru dynasty was way too close to the, the Soviets, tried to sort of have a middle position between America and the USSR. And I think that was all a big mistake for India. So I understand where she's coming from, but I just don't think it should be in uh, a curricular standard, the way the United States Constitution and Declaration of Independence are remarkable documents and the foundations of uh, and frameworks for uh, freedom should be a curricular standard in a basic public civics class. Yeah, so I think you you see um, in these two clauses, you see a lot of what's going on, you know, trying to, you know, co-opt one thing, one side or the other for the election and so forth. Um, so, and uh, you know, trashing the, you know, the, the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution, and then the right grabbing onto any t- time anybody says anything against those things, and and try to make more hay out of it than than may actually be there in some cases. Although in this case, I think it's it's they're they're more correct than incorrect. Okay, and this was self inflicted. Ann Holton is the one who's you know right, bringing, bringing it, up. it up. Right. Um, but again, I think she's she's half right. Um, you know, she's, I do too. Yeah. On 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 the um, on the socialism right. thing, it it really shouldn't be there. Probably in 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 the uh, cur- cur- curricular principles. Okay, so the point here was to demonstrate. Obviously, we grab more onto the question about the Declaration of the Constitution in light of our discussions with Kim in recent weeks. I think it it kind of stood out for us. Before we wind up, I do want to uh, just get onto this um, update our audience before before too long goes by. 
um, about what's going on with Moore versus Harper because we've been reading about some changes in the alignment of the North Carolina Supreme Court, and they're going to rehear certain cases, and um, that perhaps this may, uh, it's said in the papers, a moot Moore versus Harper, and the court may not even decide it, <laughs> and people are uh, including me, are uh, are not too happy about that prospect. So, what well, your reaction to this, Akil? And please give us um, the facts as well. The North Carolina Supreme Court, way back when, issued some rulings that the, the Democrats in general cheered on, and there were new elections because these state judges are elected, and there were new elections, and and now there are some new judges on the North Carolina Supreme Court, more conservative um, justices, state justices, and they've decided to take another look at the issue of apportioning congressional elections. So the question is, now that they're going to take another look at the issue, what does that mean for the U.S. Supreme Court? And one thing some people have said is, well, it means that the case is now moot or could be moot, and the Supreme Court should just shouldn't hear it at all. I don't know about that, because what the petitioners were really objecting to, and Andy, you and I were there in an oral argument, was just the very fact that the state Supreme Court was involved in any way, shape, or form. Their strong version that they were pushing of ISL is, this is up to the legislature to decide, and the state court should have no role whatsoever. Well, if that's their position, even if the state Supreme Court modifies its position, it still is playing a role. It's using the state constitution and saying it's, you know, uh, relevant. So I don't think that that would moot out the case in some technical way. And what would it mean for the case to be mooted out that the Supreme Court just can't hear it? That said, the Supreme Court might very well choose simply to say, we're going to hold off on deciding certain things and just wait to hear what the North Carolina Supreme Court has to say. They could do that without mooting the case by, this is a different formulation, dismissing the writ as improvidently granted, the writ of certiorari, or in Supreme Court jargon, digging the case, D-I-G, to dismiss as improvidently granted the writ of certiorari. I know you'd be a little bummed out um, uh, by, by that, Andy, but of course you know that in the brief that Vic Amar and Steve Calabresi and I submitted and that you read uh, 20 versions of, we proposed to the Supreme Court that that was a possible off-ramp, that um, if the Supreme Court wanted to duck the biggest issues of ISL, independent state legislature theory, they could send the case back to the North Carolina Supreme Court for, for more careful examination of certain issues, and in particular, the issue of whether the state constitution applies not of its own force, but because, but rather because the uh, North Carolina, North Carolina legislature has chosen to make it applicable. So it's perfectly possible that the Supreme Court could actually say, we're going to hold off. We're going to send the case back. Our amicus brief identified that as a as a possible off-ramp. That said, there's a strong national interest in the Supreme Court making clear what the rules are before the 20 long before the 2024 
a presidential election, the rules not just for congressional elections, but by implication, presidential elections, because presidential ISL is connected to congressional ISL, and not just for North Carolina, but for all the other states, especially places like Pennsylvania and Wisconsin. There's a strong national interest. And the thing was well litigated, well argued on real concrete facts. So I believe there's nothing technically improper at all with the court issuing a, a declaratory judgment, Marbury style, of what the law is in this area, even if there are ongoing uh, developments in North Carolina. So mootness is a doctrine that wasn't constitutionalized until 1969 by the United States Supreme Court. I have real questions about actually treating mootness as a constitutional barrier. There are good reasons sometimes for a court to actually make clear what the law actually is, even if facts have changed, especially when they are sure that they got very, very good briefing on a real set of facts that did exist at a certain moment in time and good adverse argument back and forth that they will not get better oral arguments than they got, you know, in any future case than they, than they got where people really were fighting about things that mattered on real facts that weren't hypothetical and, and made up. So, um, and if there's a national interest in making clear what the law is, this is a good vehicle for that. Put another way, some of us fedgered folks actually think that mootness on appeal raises some distinctive issues because because some of the concerns that might otherwise apply in a completely hypothetical situation don't apply where there really were facts cases really a case on those facts really was very very well uh, litigated and ventilated because you want that before you weigh in as the supreme court so um, i won't get into all all the details, but mootness on appeal raises different issues than other kinds of mootness, which in turn are different um, from simply whether the case should be dismissed as improvidently granted. And the strong argument to not do that is um, this is a perfectly good set of facts with excellent oral argument that really tees up the relevant legal issues so that you can decide them. And not just for North Carolina, but for all America well before the next election. Okay. So, and now if you were on the court. God forbid. What What would you, now we know which way you'd come out in terms of the, uh, you know, the facts, not sort of thing, but, um, you know, what, which of these uh, avenues final, would you pursue? Final point. Um, and I, let's just modify it. Let's say if Vic were on the courts, who, who's a realistic possibility, you know, if Neil were on the court, another realistic possibility. Well, if you're on the court, you also actually have to make a tactical judgment about whether if the court does actually roll on the merits, your side is going to win or not. Because mm -hmm. if your side is going to win, oh, you want to, you know, lock in the win. If your side maybe doesn't have the votes, oh, well, or you're not sure you have the votes, oh, well, maybe we should, um, we should uh, drop the thing. So, so a tactical that judgment. Doesn't sound, that doesn't sound right. I mean, because you know, you're the judge, you're supposed to say what the law says. If it, if you're saying it's improvidently granted, then you're saying that it was improvidently granted. Well, I'm so saying that there's was actually, wasn't, well, right? no, so. no, no, there's, there's, so this is a good point, Andy. Um, judges have discretion 
They, they don't have discretion about the merits of a case, what the law actually says, but they do have discretion on whether they're going to hear something at all. And if so, when? That's what certiorari is right. all about. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's not unprincipled at all. This was one of the bigger contributions of a scholar named Alexander Bickel in a very famous book and before that an article on the least dangerous branch. It's permissible for a judge to say, I don't want to hear this case right now. I don't want to hear it because if the court hears it, my side, which is the correct side, will lose. Whereas if I wait just a bit, time um, will pass, and I predict that I uh, will get more votes with uh, the passage of time. That's not an unprincipled position at all. The pro-same-sex marriage folks were in that boat trying to decide when they wanted the Supreme Court finally to hear the issue of same-sex marriage. And they didn't want the case to, to be decided on the merits by the court until they were pretty sure that they had five votes. And that's not an unprincipled, because they thought every day that passes is a day that actually, for a variety of reasons, makes our side stronger. More and more people every day are coming to see the light and the people who don't see the light are dying first well, I think in, you, in, in America. So I can accept that principle, but I think you need to still um, stay within things that you know are true. In other words, like yes. you could say, you can't say that it moots it if you don't think it moots it. You know, and I and I right. said I didn't think right. it was moot. Right. Yeah. Right. So. Yeah, I um, didn't think it was moot. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, well, you from, can't say from, that from a strategic. Well, let's moot but, it so that yeah. Uh, and I, and that's why I'm, uh, unlike Rick Hazen and others in the press, I, I'm skeptical of technical mootness. And that's been my position for 40 years. I, I actually wrote a review of the Hart and Wexler casebook on Fed Court, to which I have a footnote all about mootness. It's how I've taught mootness every year when I teach Fed Court. So I don't think it's technically moot, but the decision whether to grant certiorari is a discretionary one. The decision whether to dismiss a writ as improvidently granted is a discretionary one. And it is lawful and permissible for tactical considerations to enter into the mind of an utterly principled judge. Because the utterly principled judge wants the right result on the merits and is actually trying to work to make that right result most likely. And if you believe that if there were a vote today, you'd lose, but if there are a vote two years from now, you'll win. You're going to say, let's vote two years from now. And by winning, I don't mean your preference is prevailing. I mean the right view of the law, you know, prevailing. If you believe that there is a right to same-sex marriage in, let's say, the year 2010, you think that that's actually what the equality principles of the Constitution correctly understood require. You want the Supreme Court to get that one right. And you know that if they actually rule prematurely, if you think they're going to likely reject that, and then that's going to be a precedent, and that's going to make it harder to get the right result, you're going to say, let's hold off until you know we have five votes for the legally correct result. And if you think with every passing year, you're more likely to get the result because more and more people in the legal community are coming to, to see the light, more and more lower court judges, policymakers, and citizens, and law clerks, and justices themselves you know, are beginning to see a proposition that, that they hadn't quite understood before, then you'll want to wait. And the liberals very candidly did wait, and permissibly so, until they were pretty sure that he had Anthony Kennedy's vote because he was going to be the swing voter. Okay, well, we'll see what happens. It's scheduled for March 14th uh, hearing in uh, 
in North, the state of North Carolina. It doesn't mean they'll decide it in time, but one suspects that they're that if this is their strategy, that they will find a way to decide it before the Supreme Court um, issues their opinion. And Andy, one final thing. All of these developments in North Carolina are strong support for Vic's and my and Steve's view of the case, which is there are resources within North Carolina to deal with the possibility of state judges run amok. amok. They're elected by the people of North Carolina in a way that the United States Supreme Court justices aren't. They're expert on the laws of North Carolina in a way that the Supreme Court justices aren't. So we, you know, um, we said that's why the Supreme Court should not try to block uh, a role for state judges and state constitutions, but should should welcome the state judiciary because it's their call in the end. Right. And, just to just to um, flush so that it's out, playing for, out just as as uh, as actually Neil explained at oral argument. Right. Just to flush that out for the you know for the listeners, I mean, so some the North Carolina Supreme Court you know decided that there should be a different map, redistricting map, and so this is being called into question. And then when the Supreme Court heard the case, one of the questions was. Well, you know, if the court is running amok, you know, wh- why don't we step in? You know, it's something like that. I mean, it wasn't actually the question, but that was the essence of it. And the Akil's brief basically says that North Carolina voters have, have recourse, you know, and so forth that isn't necessary for the Supreme Court to usurp the people of North Carolina um, in this way because they have recourse. If they don't like what the court is doing, they can... They can vote them out, which is exactly what they did. So that's, yes, right. So, so yes, that is a good way to support you know our position in Moore versus Harper. So, um, so actually, so, yeah. So know, in other words, Andy, anything that happens in the news, Akil is going to be likely to say, "Oh, I was right. I was right. I was right." And here's why I was right. Well, but I mean, this is <laughs> it's interesting. If you were sitting on the Supreme Court now, perhaps this development, this sort of hyperactivity by the. Uh, by the North Carolina Supreme Court, this rush to get this on the docket and get it decided may act, could actually backfire um, if they think that this is a way to undermine the, uh, you know, to try to keep the ISL theory alive. Most state judges actually do oppose ISL, um, whether they're conservative or, or liberal, Republican, Democrat, because they understand um, state constitutions are um, their province, their call. Right, but I think in this case, the the fact that this is being rushed in this manner reflects. Well, it's being rushed not not just necessarily because of the Supreme Court, but you know because it's an election law issue, and you should have things decided you know or, uh, long ahead of elections. Evan Kaminker, Vic's dear friend, wrote a, a spectacular amicus brief on behalf of the uh, judiciaries of. Almost all the states, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, almost all the state judges are um, as one in thinking this is uh, for them to decide and not for the U.S. Supreme Court. Right. Well, it'll be interesting to see because it's possible that the that the uh, North Carolina ju- judges or justices may write something saying it's none of our business, and then in that case, that would not be that would not be true. But we'll see. So, okay. Well. Very interesting. And uh, listeners, we are going to have an episode soon with your questions. We're all ready, but we're out of time. So until then. Okay. Bye.